to thank you first for your prayers for me. Uh, I know many of you have been asking how I'm feeling. I liken it to my sanctification. I'm not as bad as I was. I'm not as good as I will be. <laughs> We're going to be starting a short series this morning leading up to Christmas asking the question, why did Jesus come? So if you would open your Bibles with me to John chapter 6, we're going to begin there this morning. John chapter 6, primarily we'll be looking at verses 37 to 40. And Tony, if I uh, evolve into a coughing fit, feel free to mute. John chapter 6, beginning with verse 37, says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Our Father and our God, be our teacher Today, we ask, we thank you for your word. Your word is life. Help us, Father, to make the word a part of who we are this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I am often amused by some of the arguments set forth by skeptics wishing to cast doubt upon Scripture and Christianity. Every year, for instance, as we approach Christmas and then again at Easter, one will hear the same so-called arguments raised again and again and again, and they are invariably always presented as if they are new and surprising discoveries to the one who wields them. One of the reasons this is amusing is because there is nothing new under the sun. And without exception, these arguments, which seem fresh and new and insightful to the current generation of skeptics, have been answered time and time again over the course of 2,000 years. They are only new and fresh and insightful to those whose knowledge of these things are superficial at best. They don't even realize they're treading on well-worn ground. I speak of this because over the coming weeks we're going to be examining different aspects of this one specific question, why did Jesus come? And as we conduct our inquiry into that question, we'll be focusing on one particular portion of God's Word, and that is the Gospel of John. And it is the Gospel of John which 
the skeptics often use as evidence against the incarnation, or at the very least as evidence against the virgin birth, if one wishes to make that distinction. The argument is as simple as it is superficial. It is only Matthew and Luke which provide us with birth narratives of our Lord. As to the Gospels, neither Mark nor John ever mention a census, angelic announcements, a stable. You certainly find nothing of a star or wise men or gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. The skeptic will point this out as if he's made some kind of earth-shaking discovery that at the very least adds another nail to the coffin of Christianity. As if over the course of the last 2,000 years, no one has ever noticed these things. The skeptic believes this to be important because somewhere along the line he has picked up this strange idea that although there are four Gospels, each of the four are for some reason required to be identical with the others. Now I'll grant that to some extent I'm engaging in a bit of fallacious reasoning which philosophers and logicians would refer to as the straw man fallacy. One engages in the straw man fallacy when one presents an opponent's argument in a way that makes it easy to defeat. The argument as one presents it is made of straw rather than steel. And it's true that the best of academic atheistic philosophers would want nothing to do with the kind of argument that I've just put forth. But it's equally true that on a popular level, one sees this kind of thing all the time. I'm talking about the silly notion, for instance, that because one gospel writer mentions a given fact and another does not mention that fact, that voila, there's a contradiction. Well, no, there's a difference, but a difference is not a contradiction. On a popular level, one will come across this kind of argument in regard to the virgin birth and the incarnation. Paul never mentions the virgin birth, the skeptic will reason. Therefore, he must not have believed it. John doesn't give a birth narrative. Therefore, John must not have believed in the Incarnation. And I want to ask, as I so often want to ask, have you read the Gospel of John? The reality is that birth narrative or not, the Gospel of John can accurately be described as the Gospel of the Incarnation. For though John says nothing about the details of the event, he has a great deal to say about the meaning of the event. And so as we seek to understand the theology of Christmas, the theology of the incarnation, the theology of God becoming man, it is to the gospel of John that we turn. And so over the course of the next month, we'll be turning to four different passages within the Gospel of John, in which the Lord himself, by John's account, explains to us the theology of the Incarnation.
Jesus, fully God, become fully man. Yes, but why? We're going to let the Lord himself answer that question. This morning, we're going to see what Jesus has to say about this, how he answers this question from this passage in John chapter 6. And I will give you the answer right now ahead of time so you know where we're going. Jesus came to do the will of his Father by giving eternal life to everyone that the Father gives to him. That's Jesus' answer. Jesus came to do the will of his Father by giving eternal life to everyone whom the Father has given to him. The words of Christ here in this passage are part of a longer narrative, so let me set the scene for you. The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus because, as we're told back in chapter 5, verse 18, he was making himself equal with God. And how I would love to camp out on that for the rest of the day. As you know, the Lord in his good providence pretty well laid me low this past week. And though being ill is no fun, there are blessings that come along with it. The blessing of sleep, for one. But also the blessing of time. In this past week, I've had the blessing of time to bask and bathe in the Word. Here's the paradox. Along with the blessing of time spent in the Word, for a teacher comes great frustration. Because as one soaks in the Word, the list of glorious truth that you want to share gets longer and longer and longer. The result being that one must be content to remember that for us as God's people, time is not a finite resource. I need to be reminded that though I will pass from this life with a list of subjects I have not been able to pursue and a list of books that I have not been able to read, eternity awaits. And I don't know how the love of learning and the intellectual life will fit into the eternal state. But I do know that it will be a source of joy and complete contentment. So I've had to rein myself in from time to time as I'm tempted to explore various rabbit trails. And as I sense I'm doing a very poor job of that this morning already, I will try to do better. The Jewish leaders were seeking to kill Jesus because they clearly understood what Jesus was saying about himself. He was making himself equal with God. Jesus' response to the hatred of the Jewish leaders there in Jerusalem was to pour fuel on the fire. He preached and when he was done preaching there in Jerusalem, we're told that he went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. So between chapter 5 and chapter 6, Jesus left Jerusalem, made his way north to the region of Galilee, 
And that is where we find him ministering. It's now that we find the account of the feeding of the 5,000 here in chapter 6. When Jesus had performed that miracle, the people begin to get it in their mind that if he could feed all of those thousands of people with a few loaves and fish, he could also kick the Romans out of Israel. And Jesus, knowing what they were thinking, removes himself from that situation, we're told, lest the people try to take him by force to make him king. That was not why he came. That night, while Jesus is alone on a mountain, his disciples get into a boat and they begin to make their way across the lake to Capernaum. A storm kicks up while they're three or four miles out into the lake, but what really frightens them is the sight of Jesus coming toward them. They're frightened, of course, because Jesus is not paddling out to them on another boat. He's walking. Jesus is out for an evening stroll in a storm, and he is walking on the water. The next day, the crowds who had been fed the day before come looking for him. And Jesus once again begins to preach. And what a sermon it is. In a gospel which is full of Jesus preaching, it is this sermon here in John chapter 6 which is perhaps the most powerful and accept, uh, effective sermon in the entire book. It is so powerful and so effective that Jesus begins preaching to thousands upon thousands of people, and by the time he's through, 12 remain. It took me four years to get my bachelor's degree and another three to obtain my master's degree. And in all that time, I never had a class which tried to tell us how to preach in such a way as to run off your entire audience. But that's what Jesus does. As you read through Jesus' discourse, you can readily see why that happened. It's as if he crafted his preaching in such a way as to bring about that very result. Everything he said, was offensive. And we can summarize it all this way. Jesus was telling all those people, your relationship with God and your access to eternal life all revolves around me. I am the focus of all that is. Verses 37 and to, to, to verse 40, then, is, is a microcosm of this entire discourse, a summary, perhaps, of the entire doctrine of Christology. According to Jesus, here in verses 37 to 40, why did he come? He came, he says, to do the Father's will. That's where we're going to start. 
we have to ask then, what was the Father's will? But first, we've got to understand this. Jesus came to do the Father's will. Now, it's important as we study the Scripture not to overlook the obvious. And when we talk about Jesus coming, the obvious point we must not overlook is that if one comes to a certain place, then that person must previously have been somewhere else. It's a pretty simple, obvious point, isn't it? I came to church this morning. I was not already here. And I didn't simply materialize as if I had never existed before. I was at home, and then I came here. If Jesus came... Where was he before? Well, in geographical terms, Jesus has changed location. We've already described his travels, first at Jerusalem and then up to the region of Galilee and then to Capernaum. But that's not what Jesus is referring to here when he says that he came. He's very specific. If you look at verse 38, he says, I have come down from heaven. Whatever one wants to say about Jesus, they have got to deal with that self-description. Now, as we'll see, he's saying much more than this, but at the very least, Jesus is saying that he existed before he came to earth. Jesus is claiming pre-existence, and that's something none of us can claim. And if one of us tried, the rest of us would think that person to be out of his mind, and rightfully so. It's one of those claims which Jesus makes in this sermon which causes him to lose his audience. So Jesus came, and Jesus came down from heaven. The reason he came down from heaven, he says, is to do the will of the one who sent him. Verse 38 says, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So we find here another piece of the puzzle. Jesus came not on his own accord, but in obedience to the will of the Father. Jesus didn't just come, he was sent. And he was sent for a purpose. So the next question we need to ask then is, what is that purpose? And Jesus doesn't make us wait for an answer, nor does he leave us room to speculate. He answers immediately, he answers clearly, he answers in great detail. And his answer comes in two parts. The first in verse 39, the second in verse 40. We know... <coughs> That is a two-part answer because each part begins with two slightly different versions of the same phrase. In verse 39, Jesus says, this is the will of him who sent me. And in verse 40, he says, for this is the will of my Father. So what should be exceedingly clear is that the one who sent Jesus is the Father. 
And although the phrasing is slightly different, Jesus is saying the same thing. I was sent by my Father to accomplish His will. Now, what is the Father's will? There are two parts to this. The first, Jesus says, is that it is the Father's will that all whom He has given to Jesus will come to Jesus. And in coming to Jesus, they will receive eternal life. Look at verse 37 and then verse 40. Verse 37 says, All, <coughs> excuse me, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 40 says, This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. And so there are those whom the Father has given to the Son, and those whom the Father has given will come, and those who come will be raised up on the last day. This, it seems to me, is a needlessly controversial truth. The reason it ought not to be controversial is simply because it is repeated so often that the only conceivable reason one might have for denying this truth is that one simply doesn't like it. And yet, as disciples of the Lord Jesus, we are called to submit to His Word as we find it, not to try to bring His Word into submission to our own preferences or our own ways of thinking. The truth that the Father gives people to the Son is stated so clearly and repeated so often as to render this doctrine, it seems to me, unassailable. Listen to the words of the Lord Jesus Himself. Once again, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Verse 39, this is the will of Him who sent me, that of all that He has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Jump down to verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Keep your finger there in John chapter 6. Come with me to John chapter 10. <coughs> John chapter 10, verse 29. Once again, Jesus speaking, My Father... Who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Come over to John chapter 17. Jesus' high priestly prayer, Jesus' prayer for his people prior to going to the cross. John chapter 17. 
verses 1 and 2, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you give him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, or given him, he may give eternal life. Chapter 17, verse 6, I have manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the world, but of those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see my glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. John Bunyan wrote a wonderful book. The entire book is based on John chapter 6, verse 37. John's not technically a Puritan, but he had the Puritan spirit of writing entire volumes on one verse. The book was called Come and Welcome to Jesus Christ. And he makes the point that Jesus' statement there in chapter 6, verse 37 is unconditional. It will happen without exception because it doesn't depend on the man it depends on God and His will, which He will surely accomplish. This is the doctrine we refer to as irresistible grace. If God has given one to His Son, that one will come. This doesn't mean that God drags people to Christ kicking and screaming against their will. No one comes to Christ unwillingly. Rather, it means that God makes sinners willing to come to Christ. When Paul, in Acts chapter 16, preached the gospel to Lydia, we read that the Lord opened her heart to believe the things spoken by Paul. If God had not opened her heart, she would not have responded in faith. If you have believed in Christ, it is because the Lord has opened your heart to believe. You believe because the Holy Spirit has imparted new life to you, apart from anything in you. You believe because in His sovereign grace, before the foundation of the world, the Father chose to give you to His Son. All whom the Father has given to Jesus will be saved and that without exception. The second thing Jesus tells us about the will of God for him, that is, the second thing he tells us about his purpose in coming into the world, is that he not only gives eternal life to all who come to him, but also that he will keep all those who come until the final day. These verses are a wonderful foundation for assurance of salvation to all who have come to Christ. 
and believed in him. Jesus will keep all that the Father has given him. All that the Father gives will come to me, verse 37, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. That is, all that the Father gives to Jesus will surely come and he will certainly keep or preserve them unto eternity. In modern terms, he won't kick out any that the Father has given him. That's actually what the language means. The Greek verb translated cast out in almost all of its parallel occurrences refers to the casting out of something that is already in. For example, John uses it in chapter 9 of his gospel to refer to the Pharisees expelling the man who had been born blind from the temple. He was already there, and they kicked him out. The next verses in our passage confirm that this is Jesus' meaning. He repeatedly emphasizes that he will eternally keep all that the Father has given him. Look at verse 39. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I what? I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Now, I will confess to you, I have lost a great many things over the course of my life. And there is one characteristic common to everything that I have lost. Before I lost them, I had them. This is particularly true on the golf course, where I have lost a seemingly infinite number of golf balls to the woods and lakes. But I had it first. It was there in my bag. It was in my pocket. It was on the tee. And then suddenly, <laughs> it was gone. You have to have something before you lose it. Likewise, verse 40 makes two things very clear for us. The first is that those who are given to the Son, who consequently behold Him, and believe in Him, are given a certain kind of life. Jesus calls it eternal life. But if Jesus gives life to someone, and then loses that person, or casts that person out, then He has not given that person eternal life. He's only given that person temporary life, unless your life actually extends to eternity, it is not eternal life. You never possessed eternal life unless you experienced eternal life. The other thing that's made clear in verse 40 is that Jesus guarantees the resurrection of all who are given to him who then, as a result of their being given, behold Him and believe in Him. Jesus says, I myself will raise Him up on the last 
day. And note, there is no conditionality here. There's no if-then construction. There is no mere possibility or even probability. There is no maybe or perhaps or we'll see. Jesus says, I will do it. Chances are that in a few weeks you may receive a gift that you have absolutely no use for. And because you're not a rude person, you'll put on your, oh, it's just what I always wanted face. And you'll be gracious and appreciative of the gift. And then, when the giver of that gift has left, you'll put it away on a back shelf or in a closet somewhere. And you won't think of it again until one day, months, maybe years later, you're doing some spring cleaning, and there it is. And down it will come to either be re-gifted or sent off to goodwill. Jesus will never do that with the gifts that the Father has given him. If you have believed in Jesus, you are one of God's gifts to his Son. And Paul tells us in Ephesians 5.29 that no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it as Christ also does the church. Brothers and sisters, let that sink in. Christ cherishes you. To continue the Christmas metaphor, picture the child who has been waiting and hoping and praying all year long for that one particular toy, that one gift that is his heart's desire. And Christmas morning comes and he rips off the wrapping paper and he sees there before him the fulfillment of his hopes and dreams. And he screams with joy and he sits there in the midst of all that Christmas chaos, clutching that gift to his chest. Of course, metaphors are always imperfect. And here's where this metaphor breaks down. Before long, that little boy who has spent the last year dreaming of that particular gift will tire of it, or he'll grow out of it, and eventually he'll cast it out. And it will sit in the back of his closet or in the basement or in the garage. Eventually it too will go off to goodwill. And Paul says, Jesus never gets past that initial excitement in which he cherishes his people. Jesus never grows weary of his people. He cherishes you, and he will never let you go until he brings you to that place where he raises you up on the last day. And in doing that, Jesus will have accomplished the will of his Father. And brothers and sisters, 
Jesus doesn't fail. Jesus doesn't fail. If he promises that he will raise you up on the last day, that's what he will do. Because it doesn't depend on you. It depends on him. It is his work. Let these truths be your comfort in life and death. Jesus came to accomplish the will of his Father. Jesus has, in fact, through his death and resurrection, accomplished the will of his Father. And because the Father's will has been accomplished, your assurance of salvation is properly based not on your feeble hold on Christ, but on his firm, never-ending grasp on you. If you are in Christ, it is because the Father has given you to his Son. Because the Father has given you to His Son, He has then effectively drawn you to His Son, granting you the ability to behold Him for who He is and granting you the faith to believe in Him. And because you have beheld Him and believed in Him and because Christ will perfectly fulfill the Father's will and because you are cherished by your Savior, He will keep you until the last day. May that be your comfort today, this Christmas, and forever. Father, thank you. We rejoice, Father, over what you have done in Christ. We thank you that we are gifts to your Son. And that we are yours always. We thank you, Father, that Christ cherishes us, his church and his people, and that we have nothing to fear because of the promise that Jesus has made that he will indeed raise us up till the last day. And on that last day, Father, when he raises us up, we will be with him for all eternity. In this we rejoice and in this we give thanks. In Jesus' name, amen.